You may open your Bibles to Romans 8. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In Romans chapter 8, let me read to you verses 38 and 39 as we come to the end of this 8th chapter and the end of the first great division, or one of the two great divisions in the book of Romans. We're halfway through the epistle with these two verses. Romans 8 at 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. We have before us, as we conclude this chapter, one of the great chapters in the Bible that has so much to say about salvation. We have before us a chapter that everyone should know well for the assurance of your hearts, for the assurance of your salvation. It is found in Romans chapter 8. The evidence of salvation is found in the first 10 to 15 verses where it describes that the truly saved will walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Instead of obeying your lusts, you will be obeying the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God has laid out how we ought to live in the New Testament Scriptures. And it's by doing that that we know that we're God's elect and we know that we're God's predestinated children. And it's the way we can know that we are in these last 11 verses or so of this chapter. Because as we read these verses, and we come to verses 28 and 29, and it tells us about the doctrine of predestination. And it tells us that who can be against us if the Lord's for us? And it tells us that He didn't spare His own Son. He's certainly going to give us everything else we need. And it tells us who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Verse 33. When it tells us, who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. When it tells us in verse 37 that in all the things listed in this passage, we are more than conquerors, how do we know that it applies to us? By being those that love God. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. What does it mean to love God? Does it mean we sing about the love of God? Does it mean we say that we love God? Or does it mean we keep His commandments? Jesus said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, he it is that keepeth my commandments is he that loveth me. That's how we know. We walk after the Spirit of God and not after the flesh. Instead of getting angry, getting bitter, railing on others, which is what the flesh wants to do. We're loving, gentle, and peacemakers. The opposite. It's not a fine line. It's never been a fine line. It's a huge chasm, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. What does your life look like? Because as I preach through these words here in 38 and 39, they don't apply to you 
unless you're walking after the Spirit, unless you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and lived up to it. Just inviting Jesus into your heart is proof of nothing. It's not even described or defined in the Bible. It's not even mentioned in the Bible as a condition for eternal life. The evidence in the Bible is is faith that bringeth forth works. And it's a holy and a changed life. It's someone that shows the Spirit of God in them because if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, verse 9 tells me, he is none of his. So here we are. Romans chapter 8. Glorious 8th chapter. Full of assurance and the last two verses of the capstone on a wonderful chapter. Have you memorized Romans 8? You say, well, it's got 39 verses and they're big verses. You could memorize it. What a, what a chapter to repeat to yourself at night while you're going to sleep. Instead of counting sheep, quote Romans 8 to yourself. What a glorious chapter. A chapter full of doctrine, full of assurance. Because this is something we never want to forget. Because when you're on your deathbed, whether it's this afternoon because of an automobile accident or whether it's two years from now because of incurable cancer, you want this established in your heart and mind to where you can bring it up and you know that you have trusted in it for two years from today because you know these words and you've laid hold of them by faith and you know that God will never forsake you or leave you. This doctrine is only for those that believe in election and predestination. I've said this repeatedly, but I need to say it again for just a moment. When we read these two verses, it says that there is nothing, no creature, death, life, nothing, no angels, no principalities, powers, height, depth, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most of the world teaches that God loves everyone. just like most of the world believed, it's not going to rain and drown everyone. It's never rained before. It's not going to rain and drown everyone. Only eight people knew the truth. And seven of them are suspect. Noah understood it. But what about the love of God? God loves everybody. Then what is hell? If you ask them what is hell, they will say that hell and the second death is to be separated from God. That's what they like because, listen, the lake of fire just isn't very popular to talk about it. Burning forever isn't very popular. So they say, hell is to be separated from God. Well, now, would you please help me understand how God loves everyone, and yet the great majority of mankind is going to be separated from His love? Would you tell me how He's loving Cain right now? How is God loving Judas Iscariot in the lake of fire right now? Is He patting him, hugging him, and kissing him with the flames of the lake of fire? Is the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who lifted up his eyes and was in hell, how's he being comforted by the love of God? This text says that if God loves anyone, they will never be separated from that love. Nothing can separate them from that love. Not themselves, not any creature, not an angel. Help me. Just help me. I grew up believing that little heresy, that little fable that God loves everyone. That's not taught in the Bible. Somebody will say, but it says God so loved the world. Well, why don't you do a little word study on the word world and see what it means? It also says that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Now that's more definitive and more complete than your John 3.16. That is Luke 2.1. Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Help me. 
Did Genghis Khan of the Chinese pay taxes to the Roman emperor? Did Sitting Bull of the Sioux Indian tribe pay taxes to the Roman emperor? Have you paid taxes to the Roman emperor? Oh, so you mean all that that word world in Luke 2, 1 means is the Roman empire at that time? That's all that it means. Then what does the word world mean in John 3, 16? The world of God's elect made up of Jews and Gentiles because Jesus was talking to a Jew that didn't think a Gentile could be saved. That's all. This needs to be understood because of our the past teaching that we received many years ago. Because this text has no meaning if you believe God loves everyone. Because the vast majority of men will be separated from the love of God. What kind of love is that? It's worthless love. You say, well, he gave them a chance to be saved, but he knew they weren't going to be, so why did he create them? If he loved them, why did he create them when he knew they were going to reject him and have to spend eternity in hell? What do we believe? We believe Romans chapter 9 that tells us that God has vessels of mercy, that he hath afore prepared unto glory, and he has vessels of wrath, that he hath afore prepared unto damnation. Romans 9, about verse 15 through 24. And we'll be getting to that in the coming weeks. Just a reminder that we want to understand these words the way that God intended them. God is no fickle lover. God has set His love upon us, and it's called an everlasting love. And He set His love upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began. Nothing's going to separate us from that love. He is going to provide absolutely everything necessary to have everyone that He loves in His presence as His adopted children. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. For I am persuaded. The Christian religion is one of persuasion. Have you been able to feel that so far this day, out of this pulpit, there have been efforts made to persuade you? Because Christianity is a religion of persuasion. Those of you that have been to college, when you took a speech class, one of your speeches was supposed to be a persuasive speech. You were to get up and try to convince the rest of the class on some point that they might not believe yet, but you were going to provide enough convincing evidence that you could bring them around to see things, understand things, and believe what you were presenting. That's called a persuasive speech. That's what preaching is all about. That's what teaching is all about. Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11. through 11. Notice, based on the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But Paul here was persuaded. You just sang Paul's words from 2 Timothy 1.12. I am persuaded, I, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul had committed the safekeeping of his soul to God, and he knew that God could keep that soul in Jesus Christ to the great day of judgment and pass him through it. So that it says in, I believe it's 1 Peter chapter 4 or 5, it says that we have committed ourselves unto him as to a faithful creator. It's a, it's a religion of persuasion. Wherever the apostle Paul went, he would open the scriptures and teach them the word of God, persuading them concerning Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you Acts 28 and 23. 
You know, I just read about Diocletian, one of the Roman Caesars. The Apostle Paul was in Rome. He was in a rented house, the Bible tells us, for two years. And while he was in that rented house as a prisoner of Rome, people would come to that rented house and he would preach them from morning until evening. At the expense of the Roman government. Praise God. God bless the IRS. The Lord, the Lord makes kings and queens his nursing fathers and nursing mothers. But I just want one verse. Acts 28, 23, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. These poor Jews that were in Rome would come into Paul's house and say, what, what do you believe about the Messiah? And so he would open up the Scriptures and testify and teach them and persuade them that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and that he had lived, he had died, he'd been buried, and he rose again, and Paul had seen him alive after his resurrection. And so had other witnesses in Judea. I am persuaded. Our religion is a religion of persuasion. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded of the truthfulness of Romans chapter 8? Are you persuaded of the predestination that's taught in 29 and 30? Are you persuaded of the election taught in verse 33? Are you persuaded that the real evidence of a child of God is walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh? Verses 1 through 10. Are you persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God? Okay. Then you've been persuaded by the gospel. I love being persuaded to truth because you know what? We need it. By nature, we believe lies. But by the grace of God and by His Spirit, He turns our hearts and He opens our ears and He opens our eyes and He brings along beautiful feet with mouths attached that preach to us the gospel and tell us the truth and show it to us from God's Word. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth of the gospel of salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For I am persuaded. Now, some would say, that what we have here is Paul just multiplying a list of things to make an impressive rhetorical point that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That he was really just throwing out a bunch of words that came to his mind. But we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, so we believe that God had meaning behind every one of these words. And so I want to briefly cover them. I am persuaded that neither death. The greatest enemy we have is death. The thing that is most fearful is death. How many in here have been to a funeral in the last one year? To a funeral where you looked at a dead body in the last one year. Okay, how many in the last one year of somebody you knew closely? Maybe a relative or a close friend. It's sober. You can remember all the good times you had with that person, and they are gone. You look at the clay that's lying there in the coffin or the casket, And you look at them and you remember seeing their face animated and their eyes and their mouth moving and their smile. And it's just a corpse. Death. By nature, we're all afraid of death. But notice what the apostle starts with. I am persuaded. Now Paul says he was persuaded about you if you're a believer. Because he says, I am persuaded that these things can't separate us from the love of God. Now, if the apostle could be convinced of it, can you be convinced of it? God gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, according to verse 32, 
And if he let his son die for us, we are absolutely certainly going to live. Death. Death is the great disruptor, the great interrupter, and the great separator of earthly love and relationships. Which is why wedding ceremonies end with the words, Yes, I'm going to love you. Yes, I'm going to cherish you. Yes, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, help me, till death do us part. Because death is the great interrupter, the great separator, and the great disruptor of love. There is no marriage in heaven. You may, by God's mercy and grace, meet your spouse in heaven, but you're not going to be married to them. I'm sorry to hurt any woman's feelings. Or man. It's just the way it is. Jesus said that. We're like the angels in heaven. We're, we're sexless. You say, well, what's heaven going to offer then if there isn't sex? Listen, heaven's got plenty. The pleasures of God forevermore at God's right hand. Stop fussing and worrying about such stupid things. Ask me that same question in 40 years and you'll laugh right along with me. Romans 8, 38 through 39, I am persuaded that neither death. I love the apostle and I love the Holy Spirit for telling us right off the bat that the thing we fear the most and the thing that is the most disruptive and the thing that separates a, a one that loves from one that is loved, you know, when a father or a mother is cut off in a car accident, leaving little children, it's horrible. That mother's love is gone. The mother's embraces, the mother's kisses, the mother's prayers, the mother's breakfast, the mother's cookies and milk, the mother's band-aids on the knee, the mother is gone. Death cuts her off. The love is erased forever. There is no more of it. Oh, but brethren, do you know what happens when we die with the love of God? Death is the door into heaven. And we are immediately in His presence. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. We, don't, we don't get farther away from His love. We fall into the arms of it. We fall into the embrace of it. We fall into the warmth of it. We fall into the fulfillment of it. It's all around us. It envelops us. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Overneath are the wings of an eagle. Around us is the embrace of the cords of love as He draws us to Himself, never to be separated from His presence. It's unlike any other relationship. I am persuaded that neither death... What did Paul say about death compared to staying here? It is... I need two words. One starts with F, one starts with B. To leave and to be with the Lord is far better. Far better. You know, when we think about a mother dying and leaving little children, that's horrible. It's horrible. But when we die, it's far better. The apostle was persuaded of it so that he could say something like that. He said, we are confident whilst in the body that if we die, we are present with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5. He had confidence about this matter. And do you know why he had confidence? Because he was persuaded. And I ask you today, are you persuaded? Are you living such a life that you know Romans 8 applies to you? And that these promises are yours? And that if you were to be cut off this afternoon by some crazy driver, that love would embrace you beyond the curtain of death and take you into heaven. And your spirit would be with the Lord. For I am persuaded that neither death, 
Death is our door into heaven. Death is simply our bodies sleeping until Jesus comes for them with the resurrection. You know, death is the coldest, cruelest, most certain enemy we have. And so the apostle starts with it. That it can't do it. It actually enhances it. Because it puts us in the full view of God's love. A fuller view than we have now. For I am persuaded that neither death. We must reassure ourselves of this. We must retain this instruction. We must remember this. And we can never forget it. Or death becomes terrible. You're going to bury your parents in the ordinary course of things. Your parents that loved you. You're going to bury a spouse. You may bury children. Let's reassure ourselves. Let's convince ourselves with the Word of God. Let me persuade you right now. Let Paul persuade you by the Holy Spirit. Paul was convinced. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that, my soul, which I've committed unto him against that great day. I'm in, fi- I'm in great hands. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said about his sheep, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Verse 29, the next verse, My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's where you are. Death can't touch you. Jesus has already died for you. Jesus has already destroyed death. So true is this fact that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us to mock death. Oh, death! Where is thy sting? Oh, grave! Where is your victory? We have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We should sing victory in Jesus right now. We'll wait. We have the victory. Okay, what else does it say? Well, if death's taken care of, what else matters? Because life can be worse than death sometimes. Ask a martyr. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. A martyr's life might have been far worse than death. To be put in a rack and stretched apart until all of your joints separate. And while stretched apart, to have your flesh cut open and hot pitch poured into it and torches brought to make flames come out of your body. To be thrown into bags with scorpions and serpents and the top tied and it's thrown into the sea. To have your belly opened up and it filled with grain and and pigs allowed into the room where you were, where they root and eat out your stomach and intestines along with the grain. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Death would be a sweet blessing. There are lives that are so miserable with pain. Pain of horrible marriages. Life. What do you think it can bring you? Can it bring you cancer to where you suffer with an incurable disease for a while? Life can bring so many terrible things itself. But do you know what? Nothing can happen to you in life that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter how blasphemous your tormentors, if you were a martyr, no matter how great the pain, no matter how long they kept you alive so that you could suffer more pain, 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I want to tell you about the love of God in that hour. He would supply grace by His Spirit that would make you able to bear it. And we read that testimony over and over and over in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Life. Life is filled with changes, disappointments, disasters, diseases, failures, losses. But no matter what your disaster or your failure or your loss might be in life, it can't separate you from the love of God. Life by its length, by its pain, by its fear, by its worry can be worse than death. It could be. It's hard for me to understand that, but it could be. And so I try to give some meaning to the apostle's word. It can't separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels. Now, do you know that there are beings in the presence of God right now that know about you? There are beings in the presence of God that know about you, and they know more about you than the people sitting on your pew know about you. The angels could be jealous. The angels could be angry. The angels could think you don't deserve heaven. But it says angels. Paul's not worried about the angels, because do you know what he knew about the angels? If they were the good, elect, and holy angels, they were the servants of those that would be saved. Do you know what they're going to do at the hour of your death? Forget the hour. At the nanosecond of your death, swing low, sweet chariot is a true spiritual song. How did Elijah get carried to heaven? Swing low, sweet chariot. How did Lazarus, the poor beggar that the dogs licked his sores, how did he get carried to heaven? The angels came and carried him into paradise. Angels aren't going to separate you. Angels are going to take you to God. You know, every time you go in a hospital room and it's someone's last room or you go into a bedroom at home and it's someone's last day or their last hour on earth, you just remember that there's more beings in that room than you can see with your physical eye. The angels of God are in that room. As soon as that's, as soon as the Lord says, bring them home, the angels take that spirit and carry them into heaven. We put the body in the ground in a nice soft bed, in a nice sealed box with a nice satin pillow because they're sleeping. We don't burn them like Hindu pagans. We put them in a nice bed because they're sleeping until Jesus comes back for that body. <laughs> Nor angels. You say, but what about the wicked angels? Well, the wicked angels were cast out of heaven 2,000 years ago with the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, those wicked angels don't want you to make it to heaven, but they don't have any say in the matter because the Lord Jesus Christ has already defeated them and overwhelmed them at the cross of Calvary. Who shall anything the charge of God's elect includes them? Who is he that condemneth includes them? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us includes them. The wicked angels cannot stop you. Cannot hinder you. It doesn't matter what they were to tell God about you. Jesus Christ has washed all those sins away. Which is why they're no longer allowed in heaven. Because Revelation chapter 12 tells us, Now is the accuser of our brethren cast down. Because now is come salvation and the kingdom and power of our Lord. 
Once Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, there was no place there for the devil and his angels. Because Jesus had covered all of our sins with His blood. The devil could come before God Almighty and accuse Job or accuse me of my sins which are many. But the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. His blood and sacrifice has already been accepted and fully satisfied the justice of God. There is no claim against me. And so to make things easier for you to understand and to make things pure in heaven, the devil and his angels were thrown out. Jesus said while He was on earth, as He went to the cross, He said, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He doesn't have access to the throne of God anymore. There's no accusation that He can lay. Leave there. I was a perfect child, though a, though a hellion, as a teenager. I was a perfect child because I had the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ draped over me in the sight of God. All my sins have been blotted out and they are many. There's no angel that's going to interrupt us. Principalities. How do you want to define principalities? It means the domain of a prince, a principal ruler, the position, the dignity, or dominion of a prince. There's angelic principalities. Principalities. You know, we use the word municipality. It's a local area of government. A principality is that governed by a prince. Sometimes it's on earth. Sometimes it's in the angelic realm. The Bible uses it both ways, and I wouldn't want to be one to narrow it down to either one. Because we've already read in verses 35 and 36 about things brought by earthly principalities, and we just had angels mentioned, which is heavenly principalities. So let's just include both. There's no kind of princely power in heaven or in earth, spiritual or natural, that can hinder the love of God that can interrupt the love of God, that can separate you from the love of God. And Paul was persuaded of it. Paul knew so much about principalities and powers. He knew there was spiritual wickedness in high places. He knew about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He knew that God had given Jesus Christ a throne far above all might, throne names and dominion and every name that is named in this world and the world to come. The apostle Paul knew all that, but Paul right here said, I am persuaded that principalities can't touch God's love for us that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe, Paul? Are you persuaded? Are you, are you willing? Are you, are you ready to go through the curtain of death into an unknown realm? Only unknown to your natural eye where there are angels and principalities and powers? Are you willing to do that? The principalities and powers were barking against our Lord Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross of Calvary. The devil and his angels were making war against Him, trying to overthrow the Son of God. And God had forsaken Him, and He had cried out about God forsaking Him. And yet when it came to the hour of His death, He said, it is finished. I have done everything you've asked me to do, and we all ought to be willing to say that with the Apostle Paul. I have finished my course. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Then what did Jesus say? Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he cast himself upon the love of God. How far did he drop? How many times did he get buffeted by an angel or a principality? Or did he have the host of heaven accompanying him 
into paradise where he went over and embraced a thief from the cross that had hung beside him. I say, but I thought Jesus was still on earth. His body, hello, his body was still on earth. His spirit went to heaven. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. You better remember these verses or you're going to be falling for soul sleep in a couple of years after I'm dead. I'm tell- Do you know how often I use these verses? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ went the opposite direction of his body. His body was put in a tomb, embalmed with spices and wrapped in linen clothes. But his spirit went into heaven because he had told the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. Then that spirit came back down, rejoined that body for 40 days here on earth, eating fish fillets by the Sea of Galilee, and then he went back to heaven. Body, soul, and spirit glorified the first one, the first begotten of the dead. The firstborn from the dead. The first one with his glorified body in heaven. He's the first fruits. We're coming right behind him. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, same thing. We can apply it the same way. There's no Caesar on earth. There's no Satan in the angelic realm, both of which are called powers in the Bible that can hinder the love of God toward us. Nor things present. Whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever could happen to you in your life in this world, that can't separate you from the love of God. Or things to come. There's nothing in the world to come. Not the great day of judgment. Not the white throne judgment. Call it anything you wish. Not Romans 14 or 2 Corinthians 5. Not the terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord's against sin and sinners. It's, it's, but the Bible says that all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Yes, all liars that don't have the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing away all their sins with their name in the book of life of the Lamb slain. I'm no liar in heaven, though I lied to my, my poor parents sitting over here more times than I want to remember. More times than they can remember. I got beat for it a good number of times too. It says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Every liar that's outside the book of life. Because everyone that's in the book of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the faithful witness, who is true and faithful, those are capital T's and capital F's, is my Savior. And I am true and faithful in the sight of God, and so are you. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and followed up that faith with repentance and good works, and you are living by the Spirit and fighting and opposing and repenting and rejecting the works of the flesh. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height. Height! 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 God's so high above you, and heaven is so high above you, He has to behold... He has to humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven, let alone the things that are on earth. There's nothing that can happen up there on God's side of things. There's nothing that can happen in the heights of heaven that can separate you from the love of God. God fills heaven and earth, according to Jeremiah 23, 23. He's got you covered wherever. If you think height, there's nothing up there that is going to hinder you. There's no 
exaltation that you can have on earth that is going to hinder you. There's no spiritual wickedness in high places that can disrupt God's love for you. If you're lifted up in honor on earth, or which is a risk to your souls, it doesn't affect His love for you. Though you might be lifted up in favor and joy, this doesn't affect any change at all with God. Think about it any way you wish. There's nothing in the sense of height to separate you from the love of God. What about depth? Well, we are down here in this little speck of dust called the earth. We are born the same way as a wild ass's colt, the Bible tells us. Now that's ugly. When was the last time you watched a donkey give birth? Or a wild ass give birth? That's how you came into the world. It was an ugly scene. And that's where we were born. We're in the depths. It doesn't matter whether you're in the depths of a dungeon, the lowest dungeon, the ugliest dungeon. There's rats running all over your body. There's pus running out of your sores. And you get a little crusty bread that's got mold all over it, slid under the door every day to keep you barely alive. You're in the depths. You're in the depths of despair. You're in the depths of trouble. You're in the depths of misery. Take it any way you wish. I am persuaded that death will not separate me from the love of God. Paul was persuaded, are you? Nor any other creature. In case, in case, death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, didn't cover what you're worried about, nor any other creature. Is your father tender and caring? Do you like those last words? Nor any other creature. But what if I'm the one that keeps me out of heaven and separates me from the love of God? Are you a creature? Okay, that settles it. Nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no being in heaven, earth, or hell that can disrupt or interrupt God's love for you. If the whole universe, if the whole universe were to come together, countless millions of angels, countless millions of men, if the whole universe were to come together against you alone, the love of God will save you and they will not be able to interrupt it or even put a speed bump in it. Believest thou this? Believe it. It's the Word of God. The love of God for us is in His Beloved. Paul was persuaded about you. Are you persuaded about you? If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been made acceptable in the Beloved. Why is Jesus Christ called the Beloved? Because God loves His Son and He chose us in His Son and because we're chosen in His Son, we can never be separated from God's love for us, toward us. Nothing can even disrupt it. Nothing can even interrupt it. Nothing can even bump it. Because it's hard to believe that a great creator God with eternal power would choose to save rebel men while overlooking and damning rebel angels. He gave us Romans chapter 8 to assure us. God knows that we need assurance. He knows that we're very weak. And He knows that some of us are weaker than others. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, he said, God just didn't tell Abraham that he was going to bless him. He let us know by two infallible proofs. First of all, God can't lie. Second, he swore with an oath so that you might have an anchor for your faith and a strong foundation to believe the promises of God. He swore with an oath saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee. When we go to court, 
Left hand in the Bible, right hand up, so help me God. We swear by the greatest name in the universe to add credibility to our words, and we better never stand in court and be a false witness. And God, because He could swear by no greater, swore by Himself. And Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that. And then He wrote Romans chapter 8. What more do you need? This is one of the great passages of Scripture where the inspired apostle becomes a holy orator for the living God with wonderful language. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. These verses are the glorious promises and guarantees of your security in Jesus Christ for time and eternity. Things present and things to come, here in the depths of this world or there in the height of heaven. You are secure if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and lived like it. You wonder if you're one of God's elect? Run to Jesus Christ in humble faith and serve Him forever. And you can be fully persuaded like the Apostle Paul was. But unless you do that, there is no evidence that you are a child of God. Don't fall back on some goofy little inviting Jesus into your heart when you were five years old or 15 years old. The Bible doesn't even mention such a thing anywhere. It mentions, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It means that the rest of this day, we're going to do, say, and think the things that the Holy Spirit wants us to do, say, and think. We're not going to do, say, and think the things that our flesh wants to do. We're going to walk after the Spirit, and it is proof that we are Jesus Christ. And if we're Jesus Christ, we can never, ever be separated from His love, God's love for us. The worst enemy is death. It's the first in the list. Just to get it out of the way, death is the door into the presence of God. May the Lord bless us to remember it today, to live like it today, and to remember it in the hour of death, in the hour when our lives bring us some trouble, when we think that angels are against us, if magistrates or principalities or powers are ever against us, may we remember Romans 8. Your Father sought to comfort you with these 38 verses, 39 verses. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.